Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm April Domboski. Sexually transmitted diseases have been at an all-time high for the past half-dozen years. That's according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And as more people get vaccinated and spring fever takes hold, 2021 could usher in a new summer of love. And along with it, UCSF doctor Ina Park predicts a fresh wave of STDs. In her new book, Strange Breadfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs, Park uses facts and humor to get people talking about these unwelcome side effects of sex. We'll talk about it all, and we'll take your questions. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm April Domboski, health correspondent at KQED. This past year, pretty much all of our health news has been about the coronavirus pandemic. Other health issues, like sexually transmitted diseases, haven't been on the radar, but they haven't gone away. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, STDs hit an all-time high for the sixth year in a row in 2019. The U.S. saw two and a half million cases of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. And with the pandemic diverting testing supplies and contact tracers away from STDs, the CDC expects 2020 numbers may not be much better. Joining me to talk about this other epidemic is Dr. Ina Park. She's an associate professor at UCSF School of Medicine and author of the new book, Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Ina Park, welcome to Forum. Thanks, April. I'm excited to be here. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. So these latest STD numbers for the U.S. are pretty bad. And (laughs) California is actually leading the way with the highest number of cases in the country for all three of these infections. Now, Mm -hmm. this trend was well on its way before the pandemic hit. So what what are some of the reasons that the 2019 cases are so high, especially here in, in California and the Bay Area? So it's a confluence of multiple factors, April. I mean, I'll say lots of people like to blame apps such as Tinder and Grindr, and I certainly think that they play a role because they've made hooking up and finding folks for sex so easy and convenient like everything else we do on our smartphones. You know, another issue is that folks are less afraid about HIV. I think there's an optimism about HIV that we never had before because now there's effective treatment that effectively suppresses the virus, which means it's not transmittable to sex partners. So this has made people 
I think, less concerned about HIV. And now we even have a sort of daily birth control, if you want to call it a birth control pill for HIV, called HIV PrEP, which is a pre-exposure prophylaxis that you can take to prevent HIV. So now we have lots less fear about HIV and, you know, people are less afraid of getting an STI. So I think that's, you know, certainly contributing. And then, of course, in the Central Valley, we have um, a pretty large meth epidemic, which is also fueling syphilis, especially among women. And, you know, in some of the reporting I've done uh, in the Bay Area in San Francisco, uh, Mm -hmm. methamphetamine is an issue up here as well in the gay community. Mm -hmm. I talked to one man, uh, Billy Lemon. He works with gay men struggling with addiction, and he sees the connection between the rise of STDs and the rise of methamphetamine. If meth was your thing, I mean, everybody's had syphilis. I'm not even sure how many times I had it. Three or four four times, five times in my life, probably four times. A lot of the reasons that people like using meth is that it makes sex really awesome. And also, your decision-making abilities are diminished or skewed. And so condoms are kind of thrown out the door. So you can hear there sort of another strike against condoms and also (laughs) sort of a, you know, this idea that, you know, if, as you were saying, if HIV is kind of not the the fatal fear anymore, then, you know, maybe syphilis doesn't feel like such a big deal. Right. I mean, I certainly think that that's true. And I'm so glad that you brought up methamphetamine in um, the gay community, because it's certainly a huge issue fueling syphilis cases as well in that population. But absolutely. I mean, first of all, April, let's be real. Nobody really liked using condoms uh, in the first place. And so when you take fear of the worst of the STIs off the table, uh, there's a little bit less incentive, I think, to use condoms. And, you know, to be clear, there are certainly patients of mine who use condoms. It's in their routine. It's no problem. But I think a lot of people, when they became less afraid of HIV, they really threw condoms out the window. So, you know, this this latest data from the CDC is 2019 data. So, mm-hmm. you know, what about 2020? Do we know if people have been having less sex because of the pandemic? What have, what have you heard from your patients? Well, so I'll tell you, I think And CDC actually released some very preliminary 2020 data. I think when we first went into shelter in place, people were terrified um, of going out there and having sex with strangers. So I think there was some social and sexual distancing going on. And I'll tell you that, you know, waiting rooms were empty, partially because lots of clinics actually had to shut their doors in terms of uh, sexual health clinics in the U.S. And then people were just terrified to go into the, you know, to a clinician's office anyway. So We certainly saw less infections, but part of that is because I think people also didn't come in for testing. But then I see, you know, like just using anecdotes from patients that I see, people's pandemic-induced sexual repression held out, you know, only for so long. And then you start people, you know, see people coming in saying, I held out for three months, I held out for six months, I can't take it anymore, I had to go back out there and get back on an app and start uh, hooking up again. So, you know, We've we've got a lot of pent up sexual energy that we've <laughs> we been, sure we sure that do. you've been hearing about already. I mean, as, you know, especially now as our vaccination rates go up, what's your what's your prediction for sexual activity and sexually transmitted infections for for twenty twenty one? 
Oh, I think we are going to unleash the beast here, April. And what it, whatever you want to call it, summer of love, roaring 20s again, whatever. I think people are certainly ready. And folks that I've talked to anecdotally are so excited to get back out there and just have sex without fear. And so my concern is, of course, that we need to really ramp up access to testing for folks. Otherwise, we're going to have, I think, a huge wave in 2021 is my prediction. And, you know, as you were as we were talking about condoms, I remember I talked to you Earlier this summer, you know, when we were all negotiating these new rules about socializing, keeping distance <laughs> right. and wearing masks and and you and some other, you know, safe sex experts really sort of drew the parallel between talking to your sexual partners about using condoms and talking to your family about wearing a mask when you get right. together. And I'm sort of curious, like, are we have we been better practiced now with all these negotiations or is that pent-up demand going to sort of overshadow these now that we're back to safe sex conversations? Okay, well, I can give you my sort of fantasy and what I wish was happening, and I'll tell you what I think is really happening because they're two different things. I mean, my wish was that, well, we practiced all these negotiation skills about you know, safe socializing, who's going to be there, how many people inside or outside, wearing masks or not. And I thought, and my hope is that it would translate to negotiating condom use, especially among the sort of the most sexually active age demographic. But I talked to a colleague of mine, Lisa Wade over at Tulane, and she's interviewed now 120 undergraduates about this. And she's specifically asking, you know, is all of this sort of COVID negotiation that you did going to translate to your sex life? And they just look at her universally give her a confused look and say, of course not. And that negotiating condom use is completely different and it's just more fraught and it's more difficult because sex is involved and there's a lot more resistance to folks, you know, wearing a condom than saying, asking, for example, when was your last COVID test and will you wear a mask? So wearing a mask has nothing to do with wearing a condom in the future, unfortunately. Um, your your book is just, you know, full of insights that can really help people, you know, arm themselves with information to make some of the healthiest choices choices for themselves beyond, you know, condoms and the obvious things, especially as they venture back into the dating world. And one of the things is about how sexual networks work. So in your book, you tell the story of two men who came into the STD clinic where you work on the same day. One man, Javier, said he had slept with about 20 or 25 men in the last three months. He, he couldn't quite remember. Mm -hmm. And another man, William, had slept with two women in the same time frame. And the one who was diagnosed with gonorrhea that day was possibly not the one that most people might guess. Can you explain why? Yes. You know, the thing is, is that the person who had had only two partners had had gonorrhea on that day and he had had multiple infections. I think he had had three infections in the past, you know, year or so. And part of that was because his partners were sort of concurrently running at the same time. So he was traveling, you know, in between uh, San Francisco as well as Las Vegas. And he had a partner in each city and sort of sort of ping-ponging back and forth between concurrent partners is a setup to spread both STIs and HIV. And in fact, you know, there's a great uh, researcher over in University of Washington who studied this. And if you take a community like a sexual network of people and you just increase the number of people that have concurrent partners by 5%, 
it actually doubles the risk of spreading HIV in that network. So even just increasing our connections just a little bit can actually really increase our risk of catching an STI. And this this aspect of sexual networks, you write, also helps explain some of the racial disparities in sexually transmitted infections, that William's situation where he had two girlfriends is actually more common in Black communities than it is in white communities? Why is that? Yeah, and it's, you know, uh, it's a factor of structural racism, believe it or not. And people don't think structural racism is necessarily tied to STIs, but it certainly is because we know in some communities that men are removed from the community due to incarceration or because of violence. And so you have communities where the ratio of heterosexual men to heterosexual women is not one-to-one and you have a deficit of heterosexual guys. So for black women who might prefer to sleep with black men, you have a situation where they may have a partner who has other partners. And that again is a setup. So black women are not less likely, you know, they're not um, more likely to have additional partners compared to white women. They're not less likely to use condoms and yet they're at greater risk simply because there are not enough men to go around. Right. Um, So I want to bring our listeners into the conversation, and we welcome you to um, ask your questions about STDs. How do you talk to your partners about sexually transmitted diseases? How has the pandemic affected your sex life? We're talking about sex and sexually transmitted diseases with UCSF Dr. Ina Park. Her new book is called Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. And when we come back after the break, we're going to dive into talking a little bit about contact tracing. These are the disease detectives who have to solve the mystery of how syphilis is spreading in the community and how we can stop it. So we'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm April Dimbosky. We're talking about sex and sexually transmitted diseases with UCSF Dr. Ina Park. Her new book is Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. What are your questions for Dr. Ina Park? Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. 
Ina Park, I'd love to talk to you about contact tracing. As KQED covered the pandemic this past year, one of my assignments was to cover contact tracing and how it was being used with the coronavirus. And I read your book then to understand, you know, what contact tracers do, because the practice really started with STDs. And you call these folks sex detectives, and you describe one case that really unfolds like a mystery. It's about a man in San Francisco who was diagnosed with syphilis in roughly 2012, and he was trying to help the contact tracer by giving a list of all the people he'd had sex with who might have been exposed. But there was one partner he met through a dating app, and he didn't know his name. Can you walk us through what the contact tracer had to do to find him? Absolutely. That is one of my favorite stories from the book, in fact. And so the gentleman did not have his partner's name, but he had an online handle. And so in this case, I'm just going to, you know, I made up a pseudonym for the handle, which is SF Jojo. And then he did have a profile picture of the gentleman. And uh, the person who was running this case named Charles Fan and his team over at San Francisco Department of Public Health looked at the picture and in the foreground, there's a gentleman who's wearing gym clothes and he's standing you know, in front of a sign for a local gym, which has multiple chains in San Francisco. So Charles, who knows like every corner of the city, like the back of his hand says, oh, I know that corner. I know which gym that is. And then he noticed something else about the picture. So the foreground is the gentleman who the patient with syphilis had sex with. In the background is another gentleman walking into the building and he's got his, you know, dry cleaning slung over his shoulder. It's like a business shirt, a dress shirt. So he's like, well, I bet you this guy who's walking into the building is going to go to the gym and then get dressed for work. So I bet you this guy in the foreground goes to the gym in the morning. In the morning. Wow. So he's like, okay, so we know that it's this gym on this corner and it's probably sometime in the morning. So his team organized a little mini stakeout and they called the gym and they said, there's one of your members has been exposed to a communicable disease. You know, they can't say anything about the person. First of all, they don't know his name, right? But they can't say he's been exposed to syphilis. So they just say, can we come and set up a table and do a stakeout? And if we see him, you know, we'll, we'll pull him aside and we'll let him know. So they set up a little table in the gym and they, you know, had to go to the gym as soon as it opened in the morning. So this contact tracer was there and they set up a table and they put out all these pamphlets about bicycle safety, you know, as a ruse. And then people would come by and say, Hey, let me hear about the bike safety program. And then meanwhile, she's staking out the joint looking for, you know, SF Jojo. And then after a couple of days of this, he actually walked in. She recognized him from the profile picture. Wow. Yes. And then she she grabbed him and she said, hey, can I talk to you? And pulled him into a back office, verified his identity and told him he'd been exposed to syphilis, which was not what he was expecting before he went to the gym in the morning. I'm, I'm sure. And I, I wonder, was he, you know, afraid? Was he offended that someone had been staking out his gym? How do, how do people react when they get contacted by a contact tracer? Well, you have any manner of reactions. This particular gentleman was just really grateful. He actually didn't do his workout that morning, went over to the sexual health clinic, which was, you know, quite nearby and actually got tested and treated for syphilis. But you get all kinds of reactions. You get slammed doors, you get profanity. I actually tell one of the stories of the contact tracer who, when she disclosed that the patient or that the person had been exposed to an STI, 
um, they assaulted her. So, you know, any manner of things is possible. And it is a very difficult job. And it's not compensated well enough. And it's such an important job as well. You know, I I talked to one of the contact tracers that you include in your book, John mm-hmm. Potterat. He, <laughs> he worked during the 70s and 80s. And he talked about, you know, in terms of the difficulty, he talked about the moral quandary that contact tracers faced when AIDS came on the scene. There was yes. no test. There was no treatment, which, you know, is really similar to how things looked at the very beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. And so, you know, during AIDS, they weren't sure if it was ethical to tell someone that they may have been exposed. What did we have to offer these people? We didn't have even hope. And these were young people. How do you tell a 23-year-old you might have two years to live? And here I am working for a medical clinic. There's not a damn thing I can do about it. It just it just broke my heart talking to John Potterhead. What were um, and you write about this? You know what were some of the reactions that the gay community had to contact tracing back then? Oh, you know, some people wanted absolutely no part of it. You know, it was enough, there was enough stigma around being gay. And, you know, this was post Stonewall and, you know, the gay rights movement. And they had fought so hard, you know, to be sort of recognized and allowed to have sex and express their sexuality freely that they said, I want no no part of the government snooping on what I'm doing. They thought the government was creating lists of gay men that they were going to somehow use to target folks. And, you know, it it did put folks in a bind because the health departments didn't want to do it because you can imagine, April, there was no test, there was no treatment. So what are you going to tell people? You may have been exposed to a fatally sexually transmitted infection for which we can do nothing for you. So people stopped doing it, actually. They continued to do it for syphilis and somewhat for gonorrhea, but they did no contact tracing for HIV. They actually started to do it as people, you know, we developed testing, early treatments came on board, but even at the end of the 80s, less than half of the health departments in the country were notifying partners about HIV. And now finally, you know, in this day and age, we are doing contact tracing routinely, but a lot of folks had to stop, you know, keeping up with their caseloads during the pandemic because they had to be contact tracing for COVID-19 instead of HIV. I'm going to uh, go to some of our calls and comments. Um, Let's take a call from Sean in Morrison, New Jersey. What's your question or comment? Yeah, my comment or really the question more is about how how these diseases are actually spread. And I understand Mm -hmm. that condoms could help with when you're having intercourse, but there's other things that people do sexually with each other, oral sex, perhaps. I mean, things like that. Like how? So do we know how how it's passed in in Mm -hmm. other areas without you know, having to do with condoms and intercourse? Dr. Ina Park? Yes, absolutely. That's such a great question. And I think, you know, people think of things like oral sex as safer sex. And from an HIV standpoint, absolutely it is. But from a sexually transmitted infection standpoint, oral sex is very easily, um, or it's a great mechanism to transmit gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. Herpes can be spread through oral sex. And most of the time, people are not using any kind of barrier methods for oral sex. So again, it can be transmitted through anal sex or vaginal sex, and then easily transmitted through oral sex for the vast majority of sexually transmitted infections. 
I'm going to read a couple comments as well. Eric writes, um, all during 2020 and 2021, I have had multiple offers to meet up for sex from men on gay chat apps with little concern for catching COVID or safe sex practice. It feels like the gay community has forgotten the lessons learned during the AIDS crisis. And another listener, April, asks, how does a woman encourage a man to use a condom? Negotiating condom use is about power, and men always want control and dominance. Dr. Ina Park, what do you have to say to April about that? You know, that's very tricky. And I have to say that if you cannot get agreement, you know, on what you're going to use in terms of protection and you are not feeling safe in the relationship, then unfortunately, I would recommend getting out of that relationship. I mean, for some folks, you know, using condoms is a great part of their routine. And then when folks know each other a little bit better and people have tested and understand their STI status, then the condoms can come off. But if someone will not use a condom, then I recommend, you know, if you if it's important to you and it's a priority, then not to have sex with that person and find somebody else. There are a lot of people out there and it's, you know, it's not worth staying in a relationship where you're being coerced into having sex that you're not comfortable with. We're talking about sex and STDs and how the pandemic has affected both with UCSF Dr. Ina Park. Her new book is called Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Do you have a question? Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So, Ina, I just I loved your book. I, you know, when I was in college, I just, you know, couldn't get enough of our bodies ourselves and, <laughs> you know, and and you know, after all these years of of covering sexual health and STDs, it was, you know, surprising to read your book and realize there was so much history I didn't know about or, you know, how quickly things are evolving. And mm-hmm. I would love for you to, you know, read an excerpt from the beginning of your book. Um, you opened with a story about why you decided to write about STDs. And it starts um, somewhat unexpectedly with your seven-year-old son, Nate getting hit by a car and I should mm-hmm. say he he's okay but mm-hmm. he was he was in the pediatric ICU overnight and so this section of the book picks up the next morning when the neurosurgery team comes by to check on him. Mm-hmm. So I'll read this expert excerpt now. The surgeon glanced over at me. Mom, I understand that you're a physician? Before I could speak, Nate interjected. Yes, she is. Then out of nowhere he added, "Hey, have you ever had herpes?" Ask my mom. She knows all about it. I shook my head and closed my eyes, lowering my forehead into my hand. The team erupted in peals of laughter. The surgeon raised his eyebrows and looked at me. Well, seems like he's clear neurologically. (laughs) And during the hospital stay, Nate proceeded to chat with the ICU nurse about HIV, the orthopedic surgeon about syphilis, and to my chagrin, with the hospital chaplain about chlamydia. (laughs) Um. So, I mean, that's a, that is a funny event. How did that lead to you writing a, this book about STDs? Well, first of all, I spent the entire hospital stay just cringing every time he opened his mouth. But I realized this seven-year-old is more comfortable talking about sex and sexual health than most people I know, including most physicians. And I just realized we are so averse to talking about it because we have so much fear around the topic. And I wanted to write a book that would be sort of funny and use storytelling to maybe turn people's 
aversion and fear into a little bit of wonder and fascination and hopefully reduce the stigma around these infections. They are so incredibly common, April. Every single person who has sex is going to get one at some point during their sexual lives. And yet we still have a lot of fear and there's still a lot of, you know, um, misinformation and doubt around them. And I just, you know, wanted to try to do something to sort of lighten the mood around STIs while still presenting great science and great storytelling. So you come from a Korean American immigrant family. What what was your (laughs) parents' approach to sex education? I can, okay, that's not going to take very long. And uh, they, they basically said, please don't have sex until you get married or we'll kick you out of the house. And that was pretty much the extent of my sex education. Um, you know, but pretty much the extent of my sex education, too. Okay, well, then, to be fair, so it sounds like it was happening in white families, too. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) uh, The thing is, April is, you know, they had an arranged marriage and they were both virgins when they got married. So they said, yeah, so they've said to me. And so if I was going to follow that path and why would they need to tell me anything? I'll figure it all out on my wedding night. Right. (laughs) And so um, I'm sure that they, they might be listening now, actually. They're probably, you know, cringing at the fact that they have this daughter who's out there talking about sex all the time, but I think they've gotten over it now. So, you know, how, how have things translated through the generations? How do you talk to your own sons about sex? Well, I mean, my kids have been constantly exposed, for example, to some of the content that I work on because I'm working on PowerPoint presentations. They're looking at pictures and they're saying, well, what is that? And, you know, what's happening there? So, you know, we started talking about sex, you know, early in terms of just appropriate things like, you know, anatomy and, um, you know, then moving into more terminology. So, you know, my kids are familiar with what sex is and the fact that you can get STIs. And when they hear about people having sex, then they'll say, oh, they should get tested. So I think that they're learning that um, that STIs sort of come as part and parcel of having sex and that hopefully when they get out there that they'll, they'll understand that they also need to get tested as well. Uh, we have a caller who has a question about this. Claire in Honolulu, what's your question? Okay. Hi, Ina. This is Claire calling you from Honolulu. And hey. um, you kind of covered the idea of teens and STDs. Um, so for us parents who aren't doctors and who can't approach it with such clarity and rationality, but maybe more of a, a focus of like paranoia and just worry about what they're getting into, what do you advise to us about how we talk to our teens about sexual activity? You know, we talk about birth control, but I think few of us are actually talking about STDs directly and STIs. And I'll take my answer off the air. Okay. Thanks, Claire. So I have a couple of resources as well as a couple of messages. So I think the most effective messages when you're talking to teens are normalizing STIs to let them know how common they are so that, you know, people don't go into their sexual lives thinking that having an STI means you're being punished or you're dirty somehow or, you know, contaminated because those are the images and and messages that we do get. So normalizing them and seeing how common they are. Mentioning condoms or other barriers is prevention. And then letting folks know how can they be, how they can become empowered and, you know, mentioning the fact that they can get tested. And so all of those, so those are the three messages. And then there are two resources I wanted to direct you to. And one is a website, which is talkwithyourkids.org. So that also provides a timeline of when you should be having certain conversations. And then I also, um, Me personally, I'm reading a great book called Sex, Teens, and Everything in Between by Shafia Zaloum, who's a local 
uh, health educator and um, and sex educator because I don't know how to deliver some of these messages. And so I'm seeking help from folks who are better at it than I am. So I say, you know, check out both of those resources. And as soon as they become interested, you know, and you think that they're actually having some intimacy with a partner, it's that's the time to, you know, have that conversation. And you can even have that conversation before they're interested sexually in folks. Um, thank you so much for that call, Claire. And, um, you know, I know I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, just sort of taking a step back from your approach, you know, why is there so much stigma around STDs? Is there is there anyone or anything that we can point to that's responsible for that in history or current times? I mean, I think even the way we labeled um, sexually transmitted infections, we know we used to call them venereal disease and the word or VD and the word venery implies that there's some sort of immoral sexual behavior going on. So I think STIs have traditionally been thought of as some sort of punishment, right? Or some sort of consequence for bad behavior, because the only acceptable way for us to have sex, you know, in sort of the Judeo-Christian society that we have here is that it's one man, one woman for life. And of course, we know that there is a diversity of gender identities and sexual preferences. But I'm saying if that's the only norm, then any infection that might happen is some sort of punishment for breaking those norms. And of course, we know that even people who are in a monogamous relationship can have an STI enter the picture. So um, I think it's uh, you know a fallacy, but it's one that we've been living with for a long time, and one that I am personally trying to combat myself. We're talking with UCSF Dr. Ina Park about sex and STDs and the stigma around them and how to talk about all of it with your kids. Dr. Park's new book is Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Do you have a question for Dr. Park about how to address a thorny question that your kids have asked? Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your question to forum at kqed.org. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm April Dimbaski. I'm talking today about sex and sexually transmitted diseases with UCSF Dr. Ina Park. Her new book is Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Dr. Park, you use a lot of humor to get into some difficult or uncomfortable topics. And in one mm-hmm. chapter, you open with a story about having a name that some people find difficult to pronounce. How do you explain <sighs> it to people? 
Yes, the story is, is that my friend Melanie's uh, parents were in town from Nebraska and they, you know, they had messed up my name twice. And usually if people mess it up the first time, I just let it go. But this was the third time. And I said, you know, I'm going to be continuing to interact with them. So I said, hey, look, it's Ina and it rhymes with vagina. And they've never forgotten it after that point. And I said, they probably know it, you know, and their friends in Nebraska might know about it as well, because they might have told the story about this strange doctor that they met. But I think it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, my name and the kind of work that I ended up doing now. So um, and you really you really embraced it. Yeah, I mean, I took it back. Yeah, I took it back. And Ina Vagina was sort of a nickname that was thrown around. And that's actually when I got into sexual health and became a health educator at UC Berkeley and started dressing up as a giant condom. And then, you know, I went down the spiral after that. <laughs> so you you use this story in the chapter of your book about the vaginal microbiome. Can you explain mm-hmm. what is that and why do women need to know about it? So I think, um, you know, the microbiome has been on every sort of uh, layperson's medical show like Dr. Oz, Dr. Weil, whatnot. Um, it's just the confluence of bacteria that live in and on our bodies normally. So we have a microbiome in our gut. We have one inside of our vagina, inside of our mouth and on our skin. And so the thing is, is that when it comes to the vaginal microbiome, there is this billion, you know, multi-billion dollar industry of vaginal hygiene products. And the message is that you have to add something to your vagina to, you know, make it smell better or cover up what's there. So, you know, Vaginas are supposed to have a, nat- a normal odor and, um, you know, there are bacteria there. But all of these perfumes, douches and other products are actually damaging the microbiome and can actually increase the risk of STIs and increase the risk of things like HIV as well. And what about um, the, the microbiome or vaginal health mm-hmm. for transgender people? You know, if, if folks are taking HIV or have had surgery, what are, what are the considerations there for sexual health? Yeah. So um, like for transgender men, for example, who haven't had, you know, gender affirming surgery, who still have a vagina, they start taking testosterone and that completely alters their, uh, their microbiome. So they may have never had issues with it in the past. And just when they are finally enjoying, you know, the masculinizing effects of testosterone, then the vagina starts to act up because the new hormones have changed the microbiome. And then for transgender women, when they've had surgery, they usually, you know, they have a new vagina made, which is made out of skin tissue. And so it's a completely different um, microbiological environment than, you know, a vagina in a, a cisgender woman. So there are multiple considerations, you know, for trans folks. And one of the things I say in the book is this is an area where I would love to see more research. So if people are listening and inspired, please do more research in transgender sexual health. We're going to take a couple calls. Uh, Debbie from San Francisco, what's what's your question or comment? Hello? Hi. Hi, Debbie. Yeah, go ahead. So my question is, I'm a bisexual female, and I have multiple partners uh-huh. sometimes, and when I'm lucky. And um, I would like to know, how I can protect my partners from ejaculates. I ejaculate profusely, and, you know, a, a condom is not going to um, protect my partners from my ejaculate. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so she's referring to um, the fact that some women can also ejaculate fluid during sex. And I think the concern is, is that maybe that fluid might have STIs. And honestly, I don't have a good answer for you because there isn't really a great barrier that covers, you know, the surface area that if a female ejaculates that would end up being exposed. So I wish we had something better to offer you, Debbie. I um, Unfortunately, right, a condom only covers the penis. Um, there are internal condoms. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they used to be called the female condom, but they can actually be worn internally inside the vagina or the rectum. And they have greater surface area to cover the vulva or the outside of the vaginal area. So that might actually help provide some barrier. But unfortunately, we don't have a great device there yet. Thanks for the question, Debbie. Next, we're going to go to Bill in Santa Rosa. Hi, Bill. Hi, how are you? Uh, Listen, I'd like to ask your uh, guest. I understand that, you know, one person has an STI and they have sex with another and they can transmit it that way. But where did it begin? Why (laughs) did it begin? Was it made of uh, uh, an unwanted bacteria that was eaten by somebody or uh, and did it start with the man or did it start with the woman where did the stuff begin and uh, specifically uh, gonorrhea and uh, and herpes and uh, syphilis where did the stuff begin oh my gosh this is such a great sort of chicken and the egg question um and i don't have a great answer other than to say i will tell you for herpes in terms of we've, there's been lots of research done in terms of the origins of herpes and how long it may have been living with us. And we are talking on the order of millions of years. So, you know, there are herpes viruses that infect lots of other primate species. And so, you know, the thing is, it's like we, there are lots of other bacteria and viruses that live in and among us, right? These happen to be sexually transmitted. Exactly where they originated from and how they've evolved to you know, be able to adapt so that they can be easily sexually transmitted, it differs for every single one of them. Like syphilis, we've known about since about the 14, late 1400s, early 1500s. But the type of bacteria that it's called, which is called a treponeme, it's like a curly sort of spiral shaped bacteria. Those kinds of bacteria have been around for much longer than that. So I don't have a good answer to this question as well. But it, it almost doesn't matter because now we are living with them and they are not going anywhere. So we have to figure out how to exist with them and enjoy our sex lives, despite the fact that we have these unintended consequences. Thank you, Bill, for your question. I'm going to read a couple comments. Greg asks, what's a good site for the current prevalence of all the STDs by city, county, state, nation? How do you mm-hmm. engage in safe sex? It seems you'd have to ha- ask a potential partner for a printout of a panel of tests for STDs <laughs> taken within a week and then put them on a lie detector and ask them whether they've had any sex between the test results and the current time. In other words, impossible. So, Ina, uh-huh. do you have some some resources where folks can look at least for this, uh, you know, city state level data? Absolutely. So, the CDC's website, which um, is cdc.gov/std, is going to have. Um, they actually have all of the granular data by um, city or metropolitan area in terms of STD rates. If you want to know if your city is a hot spot. You can go there. So all of the 2019 surveillance data is publicly available. All of the data slides, if you really want to take a deeper dive into what's going on with STDs, both nationally and in other parts of the country. 
is all there. The other point about, you know, having to do this exhaustive uh, exam and, you know, print out and showing your status to folks. I mean, it's interesting because apps that are directed more towards gay men, such as uh, Grindr and others, actually have this ability to uh, put on your profile your HIV status, if you're HIV negative, whether or not you're taking pre-exposure prophylaxis, if you're HIV positive, whether or not you're taking medication. And there has been some effort. There's actually multiple startups actually looking to see if they can create a profile as well that integrates with dating apps to say, upload your STI testing results. And so you don't actually have to have a difficult conversation about your STI status. So I'm hoping, you know, that kind of stuff becomes more common. But until then, we need to have an old-fashioned conversation about when was your last STI test and what were the results. And what is a good a good rule of thumb for how often people should get tested for STDs? So, you know, for most folks, um, for men who have sex with women and women who have sex with men, so these are cisgender folks, um, you know, once a year is a good rule of thumb. And then, of course, if you're, my friend Dan Wolfheiler would use the oil change theory of um, STD testing, which is like every three years or every 3,000 miles kind of thing. And he would say, you know, let's say you have multiple partners. Well, I'm going to come in every three partners or every two partners and get tested or every 10 partners, depending on how active you are. But most CDC guidelines, for example, for men who have sex with men and for transgender folks who are having sex with men would say to test um, up to every three months. And you don't want to test too frequently because if you have something positive, it takes a while for that to clear and you don't want to be, you know, testing for old infections. We have another comment from Darlene. I'm a woman in a long-term relationship with a queer man who I just Mm -hmm. discovered is an IV meth user whose Mm -hmm. drug use fuels reckless sex with men. There was a recent bout with syphilis as a result of his behavior, and we are now both taking PrEP. Even Mm -hmm. in the Bay Area, where people have a vast array of sexual expressions, I feel very alone being a woman on the edge of the gay chem sex epidemic. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you have come across many women with this experience. I have, and I'm really happy that you shared your story. And I'm so happy that both of you are taking HIV prep because syphilis, we can treat. Gonorrhea, we can treat. And HIV, of course, we can treat, but we can't cure. And so I think the fact that you are doing that and taking that measure to protect yourself is great. And you are going to feel empowered because of that. But it is really hard. And as you mentioned in the beginning of the segment, April, that, you know, methamphetamine is a huge issue in the LGBT community. And this caller's experience just proves that, you know, it is affecting relationships and can be really destructive in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um. We have another comment. Chris writes, my son has HPV. He says he hasn't been with anyone but his first and only girlfriend. He's 19. It's so hard for him to talk about it. He feels ashamed and embarrassed to be with anyone else. His ex-girlfriend won't talk about it or admit it. It's such a tricky virus. And uh, we're about to take a break, but any advice? Yes, absolutely. I mean, first of all, HPV is universal and every single person who is going to have sex is going to get exposed. So your son is not alone and just means that he's a human being who has sex. And I would say that 
you know, he will likely clear it in about, you know, in two years or less. And now there's a fantastic vaccine that protects against nine types. So even though he's been exposed to one type, I strongly encourage him because he's 19. You can get the vaccine up to age 45. Go out and get the HPV vaccine so that he doesn't have another episode um, of HPV later. Uh, And I'm going to ask you a question about that. But first, Mm -hmm. this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm April Domboski. So, Dr. Park, you know, as you were you were recommending, you know, get the HPV vaccine, you know, for some parents, it can be kind of a tough sell to give, you know, especially if their kids are younger, a vaccine for for an STD. What's your approach? I'm sorry, April, can you take that again? I missed the last part of that question. Sure. Yeah. You know, just, you know, for for parents who may be hesitant about the Mm -hmm. HPV vaccine, especially if their kids are not sexually active yet, what's what's your approach with them? So, April, that is the perfect time to actually give the HPV vaccine because once you've gotten exposed, it actually has no therapeutic benefit. And so the thing is, as we both know, that sometimes – we don't know when our kids first become sexually active or start exploring. You don't have to have any kind of penetrative sex, whether it's oral, vaginal, or anal, to actually get HPV. Just rubbing up against another person, skin to skin, is enough to transmit it. And then, of course, we also know that folks do experience sexual assault, which can absolutely transmit HPV and can transmit types of HPV that are cancer-causing. And so the time to get vaccinated is right now before you know that any type of sexual exposure has happened. So I got my son vaccinated, and I tell everybody that I did um, because I'm hoping that that will encourage people and give them some confidence and faith because, um, you know, clinicians are doing it as well. Uh, We have another question from a caller, Rhea in San Francisco. Hi. Hi, Rhea. I'm a mom and I'm just starting to um, dive into the sex, sexual world of teens uh, <laughs> so that I can keep my kids safe. So I just want to get your thoughts on a couple of things and then I'll hang up and listen off offline. But first, I, I want to hear your thoughts around the gender norms. I'm watching mm-hmm. as the, the young men are kind of becoming men in this act of sex and the young girls are losing their virginity and being Mm -hmm. slut shamed and it's absolutely horrific to watch and it's getting worse i think you know i'm in my late 50s and watching it i feel like it's getting worse not better um Mm -hmm. from when i was in college and high school so that's a very sad thing i want to hear your thoughts on that and then also i want to know if you have watched netflix's um sex education i did watch it with my kid and think it is absolutely brilliant for the kids but i do want to get your thoughts on it because it's pretty controversial well i just want to chip in there and say i watched sex education and i loved it it's entertaining even for adults um dr park i'm not sure if you've seen it and have have thoughts on it No, it's on my Netflix list. I absolutely need to. You know, it's hard for me sometimes to watch content about sex because it's like, oh, no, I do that at the office every day. (laughs) Too much work. But um, I absolutely want to. And now that I've heard that um, that she enjoyed it and that also um, there's, you know, that it might be good. I don't know if you watched it with your teen or not, but um, I absolutely will. will give it a give it a glance. But in terms of this sort of culture and and slut shaming issue, you know, um, A friend of mine, Peggy Ornstein, wrote this great book called Girls and Sex. And I was just so um, 
upset and appalled to see how little that has changed in terms of this idea that girls are giving it up or losing their virginity. I really want to get rid of that term. I mean, you know, people are having their first sexual experience together with another person. And so it's not that one person is gaining and one person is losing. I really dislike that mentality. Um, and I'm really sad to hear that you think it's gotten worse and not better because I thought it was awful when we were coming of age sexually as well. So, you know, I don't know what to do about that other than you can do individually what you can as a parent and have those conversations remaining sex positive and teaching your you know, your son, how to be respectful and talking about consent and talking about mutuality and pleasure. I mean, these are the things that we can do on an individual level to, you know, reinforce those um, values in our kids so that when they go out there into the sexual space, you know, that they are respectful partners. A couple other comments. Um, One listener asks, can you recommend reading for teens regarding how to navigate sexual relationships? Ooh, I wish I could. I did not prepare for that, April. I don't have a great book for teens, but oh my gosh, I am on the lookout for one because I have a 13-year-old who's asking a lot of questions about sex, most of which I can answer, but I'm going to try to direct him to something. I don't have anything. We'll have to figure that out. Okay. And Michael asks, where can people be discreetly tested for STDs? County health departments, Planned Parenthood? Mm-hmm. Yes and yes. I mean, so many county health departments have... Um, you know, STD clinics or STI clinics um, where you can get testing and that testing is confidential. They're often, you know, most of the time do not bill your insurance. So we have patients come in, for example, who are insured, who get their primary care in one place, but they just don't really want to disclose, you know, what they're up to sexually to their doctor. So they come to the sexual health clinic to be, um, to be tested. And then Planned Parenthoods are a great place as well. You know, we used to think of them as only places for cisgender women, but they see folks of all genders. They see men who have sex with men. So it is definitely a great place to get your STI testing if you have one nearby. Thank you so much for all of your insights and advice. Uh, We've been talking about sex and sexually transmitted diseases with UCSF Dr. Ina Park. Her new book is Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Park, it was great to have you. Oh, it was great to be here, April. Thanks. You've been listening to Forum. I'm April Dimbaski. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.